It's not the best of beginnings, but I'm not really sure how to pronounce what I'm talking about tonight. (laughs) So I looked it up, and in Greek it would be pronounced chalkedon. But I'm not going to use the Greek pronunciation. There are a variety of ways of saying it, so put up with my Scots chalcedon. Um, There are other ways. The person of Jesus has always constituted the test of an individual's reaction to the revelation of scriptures. It was the theme of the question that Jesus himself posed when he asked the disciples, but who do you say that I am? And in the early centuries, the church struggled over how to respond accurately to that question. At Chalcedon, the tensions that had arisen between the theologians of Alexandria and the theologians of Antioch, the two main centers of Christian teaching in the Eastern world, these tensions were largely resolved with the acceptance of the Chalcedonian definition. The American theologian B.B. Warfield, writing in the early part of the 20th century regarding Chalcedon, said, What may very properly be called the Chalcedonian settlement has remained until today the authoritative statement of the elements of the doctrine of the person of Christ. It has well deserved to do so, for this settlement does justice at once to the data of Scripture, to the implications of an incarnation, to the needs of redemption, to the demands of the religious emotions, and to the logic of a tenable doctrine of our Lord's person. That was Warfield's assessment a hundred years ago, and that assessment also has stood the test of time. What we're trying to talk about this evening lies at the very heart of Christianity. For the essence of Christianity is not some body of teaching that might have been uttered by anyone. The essence of Christianity is Christ himself. And if we do not have a clear grasp of who he is, we've compromised. Indeed, we may very well have lost what is essential to the message that comes in his name. But to emphasize the enduring nature of the settlement that was reached at Chalcedon isn't to say everything about the situation. Because in that same passage, the B.B. Warfield went on to say, this settlement is a mere statement of the essential facts and does nothing to mitigate the difficulty of the conception which it embodies. The difficulty of conceiving two distinct natures united in a single person remains. And this difficulty has produced in every age a tendency, more or less widespread, to fall away from the doctrine, or to explain it away, or even decisively to reject it. And of course, that problem has continued to affect 
the life and testimony of the church. The non-Christian world is prepared to concede the humanity of Jesus Christ. And in many conservative circles, there's been an, an overreaction to that situation by insisting on the deity of Christ. Whereas the portrait of Chalcedon is one of balance. Over the centuries, there have been changes in the way in which being truly human has been conceived of. And yes, there is a need to think through what that involves in our modern situation so that we can connect with our contemporaries, we can connect with the thought world of which we ourselves are very much part. But the task of thinking it through again has to be approached with extreme caution because there is truth that is non-negotiable and it must never be compromised in the name of modernity. So how shall we go about this? Well, I want to start by looking at the controversies that preceded Chalcedon. You may be familiar with a series, certainly one series of Christian books, Four Views On. Four views on the millennium, four views on hell, four views on predestination. Well, if that sort of series had been written in the early centuries, it would certainly have contained two volumes. The first volume would have been four views on the Trinity, and the second volume would have been four views on the person of Christ. Four views on the Trinity would have been published in the years leading up to Nicaea in 325, or, or certainly uh, in the years up to uh, the Council of Constantinople in 381, which finally resolved those matters. It's in the following decade, decades, the decades after uh, Constantinople, that the second book would have been written. Four views regarding the person of Christ. At Nicaea, it was established, clearly declared, that Christ was God the Son, the second person of the Trinity. And once that had been declared and accepted, the focus of the church moved on to asking, how can Christ simultaneously be truly God and truly man? At first, the problem was to establish the deity of Christ in an adequate conception of the triune God. What the years up to Chalcedon were focusing on was how could you say of one person, truly God, truly man? And what we have to remember also is that these questions weren't just agitated and discussed in ecclesiastical circles. It wasn't just when you got um, a, a ministerial fraternal together that these questions uh, were discussed. They were matters of ordinary conversation. There's a well-known passage in one of the Cappadocian fathers, Gregory of Nyssa, who records, 
Constantinople is full of tradesmen and slaves who are all of them profound theologians preaching in the shops and in the streets. If you want a man to give you change for a piece of silver, he tells you wherein the son differs from the father. If you ask the price of a loaf, you are told by way of reply that the son is inferior to the father. And if you inquire whether the bath is ready, the answer is that the son was made out of nothing. And in that passage, uh, Gregory is really saying to us, this is what people were obsessed by. Just as if you want to strike up a conversation nowadays with someone, I'm told the best thing is to strike it up with what passes for modern religion. Talk about football. You can always get a a conversation started by talking about football. Well, in the years up to Chalcedon, if you wanted to get a conversation started, ask who Jesus Christ was. Was he truly God and truly man? It's a thought world, you know, it's so different from nowadays. It takes quite an effort to realize this was what the barbers, the bakers, the people who, the bankers, I suppose, asking for a piece of, a change of a piece of silver. This is what they were wanting to talk about. So Chalcedon wasn't dealing with some abstruse theologian's dispute. It was talking about what everyone was interested in. So we've got this book, Four Views on the Person of Christ. And the first view, first chapter, would have been written by Apollinaris. He became bishop of Laodicea around 361. And his teaching was condemned as heretical by the church. But this was a dispute within the church. You know, if I say his teaching was condemned as heretical, what sort of person comes into your mind? Well, Apollinaris was a man of exemplary character. Uh, he, He remained, even after his teaching was condemned, on the best of terms with eminent figures in the church, like Athanasius and Basil. They they still corresponded with him. They, They were still friendly towards him. So this, we're dealing here with people who were within the church and were grappling with a real problem that they were trying to envisage. Sometimes they got it wrong. The problem, heresy isn't getting the wrong answer when you're dealing with a difficult theological question. Heresy is in refusing to change your mind when you've got it made known to you that you've got the wrong answer. It's not something to be waved as, well, you can't start thinking that way. That may be wrong. Apollinaris was a genuine man grappling with a real problem. He got the wrong answer. He was struggling to work out how the divine person of the Logos could be united with a perfect human person. Now, he was approaching matters in the categories of Greek thought. He was Greek. That was the way he thought. That was the way many of the early church fathers thought. And they, had a, they could see a conundrum here. If you have someone who is perfectly divine and someone who is perfect man, how can you, divide, how can you bring together 
two perfections in, and have one new perfect whole. And as a result, he was led to deny the completeness of Jesus' humanity. What he did was say that Jesus, being God, received a body and a soul, but not human rationality. In his later thinking, Apollinaris seemed to have a trichotomistic view of human nature, body, soul, and spirit. And he took the view that Christ didn't have a human spirit. Sometimes uh, that's expressed in a rather unfortunate way by saying that the the Logos assumed an irrational human nature. That, that makes him sound as if it was verging on madness. But irrational there means a human nature without a mind. That was provided by the divine mind. But the church said you can't go that way. That is undermining the integrity of Christ's human nature. And so his views were condemned a number of times by the early church. But although they were condemned, they didn't vanish because the underlying problem was still there. And to the people of his day, this seemed a plausible answer. You have in Jesus Christ, God and man, and it is God taking as much of humanity into union with the Son as is possible. And you getting uh, the one mind the divine mind controlling the humanity. So that would have been the first chapter of our imaginary book. The second chapter would have been contributed, well, if not by Nestorius, by one of his followers. He was a popular preacher at Antioch. And from 428, he became a controversial, frequently belligerent bishop in Constantinople. There continues to be some doubt over whether he really taught the heretical view that goes by his name. His answer to the question of how can Christ be truly God and truly man is that there were two persons in the one body rather than one person. That there was no permanent union of Jesus' human nature and divine nature. There was no real incarnation. It was rather an alliance between God and man. Jesus was actually two persons, not one. And the human nature was completely controlled by the divine. Now, Nestorius may not actually have taught this. But there were many people who thought that he did. And some of them accepted what they considered themselves to be his teaching. But others rejected it. And in many ways, it's a sorry episode in the history of the church because the search for truth was frequently marred by personal animosity, ecclesiastical rivalry. There was a battle going on as to whether the church in the East would recognize the Bishop of Constantinople or the Bishop of Alexandria as number two in the Christian world after the Bishop of Rome. And there were considerable other levels of dispute between the two bodies in the church. So there was a great deal of personal antagonism, 
a lot of ecclesiastical politics behind Nestorius being deposed as a bishop and his teachings being condemned. But the church condemned it because it didn't cohere with the scriptural portrait of Christ. There's no hint in scripture of tension or separation between a human nature and a divine nature. You don't have two persons called Christ who are talking to each other. There's no opposition between the human and the divine. The church therefore insisted that the answer to Jesus, truly God and truly man, wasn't to be found in Nestorius' idea of there being two complete persons who'd come to an amicable arrangement as to how to proceed. The church insisted Christ was one person with both a human and a divine nature. The third chapter in the book would be contributed by Eutyches, leader of a monastery in Constantinople. And he denied that there was a union of the two natures in one person. Instead, he said, that the human nature of Jesus was swallowed up in the divine nature and created something totally new. Jesus, truly God and truly man, because they came together and it was something that never existed before. Uh, this viewpoint is sometimes also referred to as monophysitism. Christ had only one nature. One nature that was this new amalgam of God and man. So his human nature was different from all other human natures. And his divine nature was different from the divine nature that the Son of God had possessed from eternity past. Eutyches ended up with a Jesus who was neither human nor divine, but something uniquely different. And again, the church said, no, that's not the way to go. But there would have been a fourth chapter, the orthodox view. It would have been that of the majority in the church. But depending on precisely when our imaginary book was written, the view would have been presented with increasing clarity. The form, the words that would have been used were being developed. They were being tried out by various Christian thinkers is to see if the church could accept them as being a totally consonant with the word of Scripture. So in the event, after a great deal more ecclesiastical bitterness and intrigue, Where did the lady go who fell off the horse? Well, it's a horse comes into my story at this point. I just remind, um, there was a great deal of intrigue at this point, and the emperor's horse intervened. It stumbled, he fell off and died. Uh, this was the emperor Theodosius II. He died in July 450. And he had been a great supporter of Nestorius. But the new emperor, Marcion, uh, was a supporter of the two-nature doctrine. And he called together the council at Chalcedon. 
Do you know where Calcedon is? And see, it just struck me just now. I've been talking about this quite glibly. Um, You know that Constantinople is an older name for Istanbul nowadays. Uh, Before it was called Constantinople, it was called Byzantium. Oh, well, the Byzantium was on the European side of the um, Sea of Marmara, bottom of the Black Sea, Turkey nowadays. Byzantium was on the other side of the Sea of Marmara, the Asiatic side. Chalcedon was on the Asiatic side of the sea. It's now a suburb of, of Istanbul doesn't quite have the same name. I forget what its Turkish name is. But it's, we're in the same area. So the emperor called this conference across the water, you know, 10 miles away, so it would be convenient for himself, actually. And it met there in 451 BC, October, November time. And the theologians who gathered drew on the letters and the works that had been produced in the previous 30 years, to formulate their opinion. They drew on letters that had been written by Leo, Bishop of Rome, of Cyril, Bishop of Alexandria, Constantinople contributed as well, and in many respects, this was really an ecumenical meeting All the branches of the church of that day were represented at it. Not every branch of the church accepted the final decision. There were some groups in Egypt that split away and some Syrian churches as well uh, weren't happy with the solution. But in many respects, this is the most ecumenical uh, decision that was reached in the early church because there were so many all the major branches of the church were present. Now you've got a handout there that has the Chalcedonian definition on it. And can I read through it with a bit of a commentary, uh, trying to bring out what is being said? We then, following the Holy Fathers... That means agreeing with what's already been accepted at Nicaea and in Constantinople. So it's really building on the Nicene Creed, which is on the front of this handout. All with one consent teach men to confess one and the same Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, perfect in Godhead, perfect in manhood, Truly God and truly man. That's really against Nestorius they're getting at there. They then go on to say, um, I'm using a different translation, unfortunately, the same of a rational soul and body, a reasonable soul and body, and that's against Apollinaris, consubstantial with the Father in Godhead, and consubstantial with us in manhood. Well, consubstantial with the Father in Godhead, that's going back to the previous controversy. That's really getting at Arian, who said that 
the, the deity of Christ was some lesser form of deity, some sort of intermediary between God and mankind. Uh, the phrase uh, consubstantial with us in manhood is very much against Eutychianism, uh, which had this sort of um, mixed third sort of uh, person for, the, uh, for Christ. In all things like unto us without sin, begotten before all ages of the Father, according to the Godhead, well, that's against Arianism again. And in the la- these latter days, for us and our salvation, born of the Virgin Mary, the mother of God, according to the manhood. Now that phrase, the mother of God, that caused enormous controversy. Um, Nestorius just could not take that phrase. And it has to be admitted, it has to be carefully defined. But that was the, the, inter, the inclusion of the phrase, uh, mother of God is against Nestorius. One and the same Christ, Son, Lord, only begotten. Ah, now the next phrase, I'll come back to this. To be acknowledged. It wasn't until 1950s that an English scholar, um, Sellers, picked up that the Greek text of Chalcedon didn't quite say the same thing as the Latin text. There was a Latin translation issued on the spot. Uh, This was part of it being an ecumenical meeting. And because of the differences between the Greek and Latin languages, this is a translation of the Latin to be acknowledged. Uh, Sellers argued, and argued very convincingly, that what had been said in Greek was in fact made known in two natures. I'll come back to the significance of that. And then these four adverbs that have ever since been associated with Chalcedon, inconfusedly, unchangeably, indivisibly, inseparably. The distinction of natures being by no means taken away by the union, but rather the property of each nature being preserved, concurring in one person, and one subsistence, and so on. So they were taking on the first three chapters in my imaginary book, and one or two other things as well. Arianism, they took it on, challenged it, negated it. Jesus did have a divine nature, and it was equal with the Father's. He was perfect in Godhead, truly God, consubstantial with the Father, begotten before all ages of the Father, according to the Godhead. Against Apollinaris, who contended that Christ didn't have a human mind or soul, depends on which stage of his teaching you look at, it states that Jesus did have a real and complete human nature, perfect in manhood, truly man, consubstantial with us, according to the manhood. In all things like unto us, except for sin. Against Nestorianism, which argued for Christ being two persons, Chalcedon decreed that Jesus' two natures were united in one person, with the property of each nature being preserved. 
and against Eutychianism, which proposed that there was just one nature, and it wasn't really human, and it wasn't really divine. Chalcedon declared Christ to be acknowledged in two natures, inconfusedly, unchangeably, indivisibly, inseparably. First two of those are against Eutychianism, inconfusedly, unchangeably, indivisibly, and inseparably are against Nestorianism. They took on and declared that these other views were incomplete, inadequate representations of the data that are to be found in Scripture. We now think about where we now are in relation to all this. There's an excellent book written by Robert Raymond entitled Jesus, Divine Messiah. And in it, Raymond lists seven modern challenges to the Christology of Chalcedon. He says these challenges are that this is Christology from above, that it's ontological, that it's incarnation-centered, that it's Hellenized, that it's pre-scientific, that it's triumphalist, and that it's pre-critical. You wonder that there's anything left after all that. Christology from above, ontological, incarnation-centered, Hellenized, pre-scientific, triumphalist, and pre-critical. Now, he does say, you find those theologians who are critical of Chalcedon incorporating more than one of these elements into their thinking. But in the face of such a volley, how can traditional Christology survive? Let's look at some of these challenges. The first that I want to look at is the challenge that this statement is far too philosophical. You frequently find people saying this is a remote statement because of the way in which it was drafted. The early church was influenced too much by philosophy, Greek philosophy, in those early debates. If it had just stayed with scriptural language, many problems could have been avoided. This isn't a new accusation. They were saying that in the time of Athanasius and at Chalcedon itself. But a careful reading of the surviving records indicates that just repeating the words of Scripture didn't suffice. Because all sides, this was a dispute within the church. It's not the church facing the world in the first instance. It's the church itself trying to make up its mind what it stands for. And on both sides, all sides, because there were four chapters in that imaginary book, all sides were quoting scripture. Sometimes one side would stress one verse rather than another, but they were all able to interpret the verses to suit their particular point of view. The challenge was, and it still remains, not picking up verses and tossing them, hurling them at each other. The challenge was to find a formula 
that reflected faithfully the thrust of all the passages of Scripture. And although we might find it now philosophical, the Chalcedonian definition wasn't written in some complex, specialized theological Greek. It was written in simple language, accessible to the ordinary person of the day. And they were interested, as I mentioned already, the ordinary person in the street, they wanted to hear what was going to be said, and what was said was said in a way that they understood. Of course, it's written in specific language. Greek and Latin were the options in those days. And of course, the language has been shaped and formed by the the thought patterns of their own day. The challenge is to use our language to be faithful to God's revelation. And really, it was those views that have been labeled heresy, Gnosticism and Arianism, that were far more influenced by the philosophy of their times than Chalcedon was. The philosophy of the times said, deity and humanity are so far apart that there's no way you can get God coming down to earth. That was Arius' problem. He couldn't see, it was just philosophically inconceivable that deity would come to earth without there being some sort of intermediary level of existence so that deity didn't come directly in contact with humanity. The church rejected it. It wasn't true to the message of Scripture. It was far more influenced by the thought patterns of the civilization. Chalcedon struggled and succeeded in the struggle of using the categories and words that were prevalent in their own culture to express the truth of Scripture in a way that communicated itself to its own day. If if Chalcedon had been an exercise in Greek philosophy, it would have been discussing how is it possible for the infinite to relate to the finite in an incarnation or in any other way. It's not speculative. They weren't trying to dream up philosophical answers. Chalcedon saw their task as descriptive. Words that weren't in scripture had to be used to express truth precisely. So that error might be isolated and rejected. In just the same way as the church had to introduce the word trinity. Not in scripture but reflective of what is revealed in Scripture so that the truth could be expressed concisely and in accordance with Scripture. In the same way, the Chalcedon used words that had a background in Greek, invented some words that had never been heard of before, and did so not to engage in philosophical speculation, but to express the scriptural reality Of the person of Christ. It's not too philosophical. It is an attempt of its day to use thoughts and words that were current to express the truth of Scripture 
And it was a success. There are others who say, well, it may have been a success, but it was far too negative. It did say there were two natures in Christ and one person. Jesus is the God-man, possessing two natures in one person. But people say, well, all that the the, um, declaration then goes on to do is to tell us what that doesn't mean. It never tells us positively what it does mean. Surely this is less than helpful. But in fact, what the church fathers were doing was saying, here are the boundaries within which right thinking about Jesus Christ can take place. They weren't saying negative, they weren't expressing themselves negatively simply to uh, present uh, an overwhelmingly negative picture. There is much positive truth. They affirm that Christ is two natures, a human and a divine. They reiterate the truth that his divine nature is exactly the same as that of the Father. It's asserted that his human nature is exactly like our human nature, sin only accepted. But they are also recognizing that it's too much to go beyond that description. There is much here that we cannot explain. No one knows the Son except the Father. And no one knows the Father except the Son and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. There is a level here of mystery and of thought that Chalcedon didn't attempt to explain because they realized they couldn't. They erected the boundaries And they said the truth is in there. Here are, they said, some truths that we must maintain. But we are not attempting to explain it all. How can there be two natures in one person? How can there be two complete and perfect natures? Two intelligences, two wills. The one fallible and finite, the other immutable and infinite? They recognized they had limited knowledge and fell silent where scripture was silent. And as a result, theologians subsequently have been grappling to try and find some sort of analogy in human experience that may go a little way towards enabling us to grasp what's being said. One illustration I came across in Wayne Grudem's Systematic Theology uh, is as follows, and I'm explicitly attributing it to Wayne Grudem, who's obviously done far more running in his life than I ever have. He says, anyone who's run in a race knows that near the end of the race, there are conflicting desires within On the one hand, the runner's lungs and legs and arms seem to be crying out, stop, stop. There's a clear desire to stop because of the physical pain involved. On the other hand, something in the runner's mind says, go on, go on, I want to win. We've all known, he says, similar instances of conflicting desires within. 
Now, if we, being ordinary human beings, can have differing or distinct desires within us and yet be one person, how much more possible is it for one who, ha who was both God and man at the same time? If we say we don't understand how that could be, we're simply admitting our ignorance of the situation because none of us has ever experienced what it is like to be both God and man at the same time. We shouldn't say it's impossible, but if we're convinced that the New Testament texts lead us to this conclusion, we should accept it and agree with it. So the negativity is setting a boundary. It's not trying to explain what is there. It is identifying Scripture's testimony to what's there and saying here are the bounds within which our thought should exist. Another criticism of Chalcedon is that its methodology was completely wrong. It's Christology from above. It starts with the premise that Christ is God and then asks how he could also be man. Modern critics begin from below. They say that in the record of Scripture we see Jesus who looks like a man, speaks like a man, suffers and dies like a man. Therefore, let's begin with the fact that he is a man. What more can we say of him? He's obviously not an ordinary man. He's one with a special mission, one with closeness to God. Some will talk about his unique embodiment of God's presence with humanity. Some will view him as the ultimate revelation of divine love. And building up from below, they try, this is pejorative, like the tower builders of the Tower of Babel, to reach up to heaven. And somehow they never get there. I don't think any Christology from below ever does justice to the claim that Christ is God. But that doesn't worry those who espouse such views. They merely say that in Scripture, the idea that Christ is God is a later reflection in the text. It's not an authentic expression of what Jesus himself thought or claimed. Instead, they say, Christ's own focus was on what he was going to do for us, not who he was in himself. So as well as Christology being from below... It also ought to be functional, focusing on what Christ was trying to do for us rather than who he was himself. But that's totally at variance with the scripture evidence. Jesus himself challenged people not just to think about what he was doing, but to think about who he was. Take one example. Matthew twenty-two forty-two. Jesus is talking to the Pharisees. And he takes the initiative in the conversation and says to them, what do you think about the Christ? What do you think about the Messiah? Now, you can construe that functionally. You can say, well, he's really asking them, what do you think the Messiah is going to do? What's he going to achieve 
as Israel's king. But Jesus immediately rules out that. He doesn't just say, what do you think about the Christ? He says, whose son is he? And directs the discussion into elucidating the first verse of Psalm 110. Now, the language isn't the language of Greek philosophy. No Greek would ever have asked, whose son is he? But the question's ontological. Jesus is pointing to himself and he is challenging his audience to work out, to grapple with the question, who am I? He is speaking and acting with a unique awareness of his relationship with the Father. He's bringing that to the attention, not just of his hearers, not just of the disciples, but of the Pharisees, his enemies. And he's doing it with an awareness that this is central to his mission. Oh yes, he came to save. We'll come to that in a moment. But who he is, is a vital ingredient in what he does. So I think that's another criticism that is beside the point. There are those who say the problem with Chalcedon is it gives a false finality. That those who talk about their adherence to Chalcedon have stopped thinking. They have taken it as the end of a process And, of course, it said nothing that the church ever says is final in the way in which Scripture is final. The theologians of Chalcedon would have been the first to admit that they were trying to elucidate these matters in subordination to the testimony of Scripture. And that's the significance of the phrase that I mentioned To be acknowledged in two natures? Or is the translation really, and I think it is, made known in two natures? What were they saying? They were saying, we don't know how this occurred. But we do know that it's been made known to us in scripture. They were saying, this is what we find in the historically real person of Jesus Christ. He is God and man. And we are reflecting on the evidence of Scripture. We are bound by Scripture. And we're going to go no further than Scripture provides evidence. They did claim to be presenting comprehensive testimony. But they were not making the claim of exhaustive testimony. They were saying, this is what we have identified in the New Testament as the picture of Christ, and we are presenting it in as comprehensive, all-encompassing a fashion as we are able to. Those who argue against this have often adopted modern critical methods towards looking at Scripture. One's view of scripture always shapes the theology that one articulates. 
Obviously, if Chalcedon was looking at Scripture in a certain way and coming to a certain set of conclusions, you're not going to come to the same set of conclusions unless you're looking at Scripture in the same way. Modern biblical studies has dissected the New Testament, subjected it to source analysis, tried to find conflicting theologies in it. And so often modern Christologies build from below, accept the humanity of Christ, and then try to find in the wreckage of critical doubt some evidence that might warrant saying something more than Christ was a man. But if we accept the totality of Scripture, its inspiration and the coherent and unique message that it presents, then we have evidence of a man who is saying himself, I am more than a man. Christ is the one who said, I am. He is the one who would say, Amen, Amen, I say to you. He claimed the prerogative to forgive sin. He was constantly presenting himself as divine. So the church's reflection on this didn't invent additional evidence on which to base its theology. It matured and developed what was already in the scriptural record. Traditional Christology, traditional views of the person of Christ are derived from Scripture. Yes, it is valid to say we need to be re-examining them in the light of Scripture. It may be that there are additional truths that we would wish to express nowadays. But if Chalcedon is true to Scripture, then there is no going back on what has been said there because it is a presentation of Scripture. And that's very much necessary in the area of functionality. There's always been a tension between the incarnation and the atonement in Christian thinking. There shouldn't be because the two mesh together precisely. It is one feature of the Chalcedonian definition how little soteriology there is in it. It's just the one phrase that they've taken over from Nicaea, for us men and for our salvation. That's all they said. But that didn't, doesn't mean that they were unaware of the implications of what was happening. The church had always been acutely aware that the person of Christ directly influenced what he could accomplish by way of salvation. Many of the Eastern theologians, uh, like Athanasius, really focused very much on incarnation. In Athanasius' view, the very fact that Christ became man, in bringing, him, bringing himself down to the level of humanity and lifting humanity up to the level of divinity really was of the essence of the salvation he provided. But other thinkers, particularly in the West, very much more emphasized the fact that it took the, both 
Christ truly God and Christ truly man to accomplish salvation. As God, he could not die. But as man, he could and did. As man, he couldn't make an infinite payment for sin by his death on the cross. But as God, he could and did make an infinite payment for sin. The God-man preserving entire the two natures was able to present an offering that is the sole resolution of the human dilemma introduced by sin. And we can say with confidence the Lord of glory was crucified for our sins. 1 Corinthians 2.8 That's why the two natures are so important. And they're important not only in establishing atonement, but also in the ongoing work of Christ as intercessor. Think of, the, of Job, the eminent believer of Old Testament times, the much-tried man who had a problem, who said, God is not a man that I can answer him, that we may both go to court together. There's no umpire between us who may lay hands on us both to establish the matter. In Job chapter 9, Job claimed there was no one who could take up his part before God. He didn't know of anyone who could be the go-between. In Job's time and circumstances, the truth hadn't been fully revealed. But that's no longer the case. Because Jesus has both a divine and a human nature, he's able to undergo human sorrow and weakness directly through that human nature. And at the same time, by his divine nature, he's able to be the true mediator between God and man. It's not simply something that's relegated to the past, to a past achievement. It's something that's integral to the present mode of existence of his church, of what he is now doing for his people. That he is the heavenly mediator who is able to see both sides and who in his own work has managed to provide for both sides. Perhaps at this point, a little warning. And that is that evangelical Christianity frequently stresses our experience, our religious experience, our experience of Christ. And that is useful and proper in its own place. But it can lead us into a trap set by pluralistic Christologies. If we're forever focusing on our subjective experience, our personal religious appreciation and devotion to Christ, over against that there must also be the truth, the objective truth, of his absolute uniqueness. Because it's only in that way the uniqueness of Jesus 
that we'll be able to stand firm against modern trends. Trends that have come through the globalization of the world, growing contact with other cultures. And there are Christian theologians, or Christian in quotes theologians, who say, we've got to be less exclusive. Charles Sedan has made exclusive claims. And in this modern world, you can't do that. The Baptist theologian Millard Erickson said, The shrinking world has resulted for some Christians and theologians in a shrunken Christ. And that can only be countered by a clear grasp of Scripture's testimony regarding his person as shown in Chalcedon and its declaration. In Jesus of Nazareth and in him uniquely, God revealed himself in the flesh. And through that, Christianity claims exclusive possession of religious truth, transcendence over all other world religions, over all political philosophies and social structures. There cannot be a compromise with the the brotherhood of world religions. That's what they're talking about when they criticize Chalcedon for being triumphalist. It is triumphalist because it is emphasizing the uniqueness, the absoluteness of the claims of Christ to be the alone revealer of the Father. And such an exclusivist, so-called triumphalist position is anathema to the politically correct who promote pluralism. Here's the challenge. The absolute exclusivism of Christianity because of the absolute uniqueness of Christ. There is no other name under heaven given among men. That must not be compromised. But intellectual and religious exclusivism shouldn't be confused with social or political intolerance. That's the challenge that's often issued. Oh, it's fundamentalist. And fundamentalists, they blow people up. Um, the, the, The challenge is to be faced that, yes, there are religious beliefs on which we must, must not compromise. But that doesn't translate into political intolerance. We must always strive to say in love, you're entitled to your view, you will be held answerable for your view. It's wrong. Here's why it's wrong. But it's you. Though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ. As we glimpse something of the wonder of his person, as it has been expressed for us in the statement, the definition of Chalcedon. It should compel within us both worship, awe, at the wonder, the 
mind-boggling wonder, we can't explain it all, of God in the flesh on earth. But we must equally, as we've grasped that uniqueness, assert it and assert it clearly in the forum of this world's views and opinions because it is the only bridge between fallen mankind and heaven at last. It is all in Christ Jesus. Thank you very much indeed, Professor Guy. Oh, let me take these out your way. We'll take some questions if there are any, a few minutes, so if you'd like just a few minutes to think about those things, please. <coughs> yes, sir. Question. Is that Chalcedon where the people went through the streets shouting, Maria Theotokos, <coughs> Mary God-bearing? It, I, it could well be. Certainly, I've avoided that aspect of the question. I, I only had a certain number of minutes. Um, <laughs> the it, Nestorius could not accept Theotokos, the God-bearer, uh, because he couldn't really accept the idea of a true incarnation. He had to keep God and man humanity separate. Theotokos is a God-bearer. It has to be used with care. Uh, but at Chalcedon, they argued it through and decided that, on balance, it was a valid expression because of the union of the persons. I mentioned the, the phrase irrational human nature. Nature. Yes. Well, there's another word. So, did I say persons? My apologies. Nature. Um, there's another word that's sometimes used, which is impersonal human nature, which is even... It's an unfortunate term as well. But the, th the thinking is... The human nature of Christ in the womb of Mary never existed apart from in union with the divine person, the eternal person. And therefore, because of the union of the two natures, from the very start of the incarnation, the phrase Theotokos, God-bearer, with the sharing is a possible expression. It has to be watched carefully. It did lead to all sorts of confusion, things like the, the Immaculate Conception of Mary and things like that, when it was carried too far. But it, because the human nature of Christ never existed apart from in union with his divine nature, God-bearer is a possible mode of expression. A Lent group some time ago, um, we were talking about temptation, the temptations of Jesus and our own lives, and somebody said with very deep feeling, it was easy for him, ten years too late, what could I have said? <laughs> Did you catch that question? Yeah, it was the answer that was really easy. <laughs> The 
we have difficulty in conceptualizing the way in the interaction between the divine and the human in Christ. Certainly there's one answer that's fairly standard in that situation, which is that the, only the person who resists temptation to the utmost and succeeds really knows the power of the temptation. So that those who give in somewhere along the road make it easy for themselves. And that's certainly one aspect of the answer. The other aspect is that in his humanity, Christ was sustained by the Spirit. Uh, This is one area where I haven't got my thinking fully clear, but I think it's one way in which more might perhaps be said about Christ. The way in which the Holy Spirit um, was God's means of Sustaining Christ. And if that is the, and I think it is myself, the secret as to why Christ in his humanity was able to bear the temptation and triumph over it, then we have the same resource available too. The person of the Spirit, God still gives the gift of the Spirit to grapple with that very situation. So, I'm not claiming I've got the full answer. I'm very much aware of many of these questions. Um, there's things that just we don't know. But I'd certainly emphasize uh, the fact that the temptation was exhausted. Satan could do no more. And therefore, Christ is able to sympathize because he's gone the full way. And the role of the Holy Spirit in sustaining the humanity of Christ and ministering to him of divine resources, which is something that is available to the believer also. To what extent is the coming together of the two natures uh, into one person related to the fact that man is made in God's image? You're pointing to a very significant feature of the situation. Christ wasn't made in the likeness of angels. It's only of mankind that Scripture tells us that we are made in the image and likeness of God. And that is what makes the incarnation as such more more plausible, doesn't quite sound the right word, but it sets up the scenario whereby it's It's feasible. Uh, It would have been grotesque for God to have come in the form of a lion or something else. Mankind, the human race, because they are made in the image and likeness of God, there's a congruence. It's congruent that God can come incarnate. Now, it's therefore... It doesn't matter where you start from, you go around every aspect of Scripture to understand this, because this is the total message. 
That's why I've tried to emphasize the Christian message is Jesus Christ. Once you've understood Jesus, you've understood the whole rest of Scripture because it all feeds into and provides light on his person and his work. And I think you're right that the fact that mankind are created that way fits in precisely into what happens in the atonement. Can I ask a second question? Yes, of course. Um, There were times in Christ's life when he didn't seem to know something. Mm -hmm. And he even talks about the second coming being known to the Father and not to the Son. And there was a woman who touched his cloak, but he then asked who it was who touched it. Mm -hmm. How does that fit in with his uh, nature, godly nature? This is where I bring in the Holy Spirit again. I, maybe, the, 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 I, I confess this is more speculative than many other things I've been saying. But as to his deity, Christ knew when the second coming would be. Because he is the same as God. He is God. And there is no limit to his knowledge. But there is equally a total human person whose knowledge of things divine was dependent on the Spirit's ministry to him. And it was a ministry that was matched to the physical and emotional and intellectual development. Christ grew in knowledge and understanding. It's not some, It wasn't the case that as regards his humanity, when he was five years old, um, he, he had knowledge well beyond his years. Yes, when he was 12, he was able to hold his own in the discussions of the Sanhedrin. But there you have, if I can put it this way, an illustration of the potential of what human nature can do when it's not marred by sin. There is a that is what a 12-year-old should be able to do with a sinless human nature. But Christ's, the, 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 the extent to which the Spirit ministered and gave him knowledge as he grew as regards his human nature, there were obvious, and the, the time of the second coming is one thing that was not revealed to him in his humanity. I don't think I'd be prepared to answer why not. I just don't know. Question over here. Thank you. I'd just like you to comment on the uh, cry of the Lord Jesus when he cried, My God, why hast thou forsaken me? Where was the relationship then between the humanity and the divine. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? If our Lord's humanity was sustained by the Spirit given as the gift of the Father, and that gift is withdrawn, 
then you have the dereliction of the cross. And I think that's a valid way of presenting it because Christ is the firstborn of the new creation, the new creation which has given to it and is moulded by the Father's gift of the Spirit. And I think that it's feasible to draw analogies and comparisons between the two. And therefore, that is the imposition on Christ of the penalty of God-forsakenness because he was there in the place of sinners. And I haven't answered all that. I hope it goes some way towards it, that there are aspects to it where, again, I have to say, I, I just have to drush. There comes a stage where you just can't go any further. Um, Christ is alive today in heaven as God and man and you talked about his work as our advocate and our mediator just to get this clear in my own mind when I meet him at his return he will still be God and man then uh, still the Messiah and I don't want to get into the realms of speculation but having taken on manhood the son continues as far as the scriptures reveal as God and man into eternity. Is that, is that right? Yes. The only thing that one would wish to, to add to that description is what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, if I can catch the verse about him handing the... When all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself will also be subjected to him who put all things in subjection under him, that God may be all in all. There is, then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father. Now, this is not talking, as far as I understand it, about the person of Christ. He is God and man thereafter. It's much more functional, this what he does. And there is a mediatorial kingship which will be fully realized at our Lord's second coming. He must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet and the last enemy to be destroyed is death. And after that, there is a withdrawal of that mediatorial kingdom into some other state um, and it's not fully spelled out, uh, the state of consummation. But there is no hint at all in Scripture. In fact, to the contrary, Scripture gives every indication that the union between the divine and human natures is 